So says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And Father, we humbly ask now, even for your great faithfulness as we open the word of God, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do in us even what we can't do for ourselves to prepare us, to give us a sensitive heart and an ear that wants to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church. Lord, we just even pray for any attitude even within our own heart or in our mind that would keep us from being able to hear what the voice of the living God would want to say to us personally through this portion of Scripture. Lord, we as an act of worship want to hear you speak to us through the authority and truth of your word. So please do that now, Lord. We don't want to hear wiser, persuasive words of a man. We want to experience that demonstration of your spirit and power speaking directly to our heart. Please do such. And we ask it expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, two things will certainly always continue to be true, I found, and that is this, is that number one, we will always fail. And number two, God will always be faithful. We are always going to continually and repeatedly fail, and God will constantly always continue to be faithful. You know, this passage in front of us this morning, as we look at it together, I think speaks a great deal regarding the faithfulness of God in many different ways. The background, if you remember, Paul has just given to Timothy in our prior verses an exhortation that he would remain faithful in his own ministry and service unto the Lord. He even gave some analogies, kind of what that might look like as he was talking about faithful men. He told Timothy, remember, to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, not to give up and quit easily when things got a little bit difficult, not to get entangled in the affairs of this life that in such a way it would choke out his spiritual life and he would be ineffective because he was so consumed with just worldly activities. He challenged Timothy to be faithful in his morality and, and, and living a personal life of godliness so that he didn't violate the rules of the word of God like an athlete, that he would be crowned in the end because he didn't disqualify himself by his moral failure. And then he encouraged him as well to be like a hardworking farmer, continuing to work the fields and sow the seeds and making sure he was faithful in his own life personally first before he was running around trying to fix the world and minister and serve everybody else. And after having encouraged Timothy to be faithful by the grace of God, as he said, 2 Timothy 1, be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus because you can't be faithful, but by the grace of God giving you the power to do that. He now sort of reminds Timothy, it seems as he goes on, regarding God's faithfulness. 
He challenges them to be faithful, but he says, Timothy, I want you to know above all else, it's God who's ultimately the one who's faithful in the end. I think to kind of encourage young Timothy's heart. So look with me, verse 8, as he's speaking to Timothy here. He says, verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, Paul says, according to my gospel. Now here in verse 8, we see the faithfulness of God displayed particularly in two ways. First of all, in how Jesus' life, number one, fulfilled prophecy, as well as how Jesus' life, death and resurrection, accomplished what mankind needed. Verse 8 really describes for us the full identity of exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ was, and that being that Jesus was fully and completely God, and at the exact same time, simultaneously, he was fully and completely human in every way, that he was both complete deity, that is God, and complete humanity, which is man. That God, the Bible teaches, God remaining who he was in all of his divinity took upon himself at a point in time in human history a second nature. That is, God added humanity. God added a human nature to himself and came to this earth in the person of his son Jesus to live among us to reveal to us what God is truly like. And so God himself stepped into our world and came basically to rescue mankind from their sin and came to be, in essence, the mediator through his son, Jesus Christ, that holy God made a way to reconcile and build a bridge with sinful man. And the way he did that was through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to be the mediator between God and man, to be in touch with God and divinity being God and at the same time being in touch completely with humanity living as a man among us so that he could faithfully do what was needed to reconcile us to God to forgive our sin to set us free from the power of sin and death and hell and in order to do this Jesus had to represent both God and man simultaneously and that's why he came in the way he did in this verse we find a reference both to Jesus his humanity being a man as well as to his deity regarding his humanity if you look there in the text in verse 8 regarding his humanity we read there that Jesus Christ it says was of the seed of David that speaks of his humanity that Jesus came as a man as as a earthly descendant of King David uh, indicating to us importantly how Jesus life as a man faithfully fulfilled prophecy or what we might say, the predictions that God made about something that was going to come to pass. That God made predictions in advance through the prophets about how when the Savior or the Messiah, Christ is what we translate into the Greek, how when he came, he would come in a certain way as he came to the earth. And Jesus, as he came as a man, faithfully fulfilled perfectly each and every one of those predictions. In fact, hundreds of predictions were made in the Word of God. Understand, hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus ever came. And God said that when the Messiah and the Savior is sent into the world, this is how we will come. This is how we will be born. Specific details regarding that. And one of those prophecies was that when the Savior was sent, that he would be a descendant, 
not only of the Jewish people, but that he would be a descendant more specifically among the Jews of the line of King David himself. Second Samuel 7, God said that when he came, he would be of the seed and the family descendancy of King David. And both history as well as birth records prove that Jesus, when he came, was a descendant of the seed of David, proving further that he was indeed on top of many other hundreds of prophecies he fulfilled, that he was indeed the Christ. And again, when we read the word Christ, important to understand, that speaks of him being the promised Jewish Messiah. Again, when it says Jesus Christ, it's not like first and last name. First name Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is his title. Jesus, Yeshua, God of salvation is his name. Christ is his title that he is the messiah the predicted savior that god would send so it says he was in his humanity of the seed of david but notice also we see the divinity or deity of jesus as well that he was god because it says not only was he of the seed of david but he was raised from the dead that is after dying as a man upon the cross for our sins to make payment for that jesus was then brought back to life he was raised back to life from the realm of the dead in direct connection to him faithfully accomplishing what mankind needed for him to accomplish. So God took upon himself humanity to be the savior for humanity and make a pathway of reconciliation for us to be saved. And before Jesus fulfilled this mission as the savior, remember, he was constantly predicting exactly not only what he was going to do but how he was actually going to do it in fact we read of these occasions luke 9 it tells us that jesus said to his disciples who do you say that i am peter answered correctly you are the christ the savior the christ of god and he strictly warned them not to tell this saying the son of man jesus said the son of man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day again in luke 18 later on jesus took the 12 aside and said to them again behold we're going up to jerusalem all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished for he'll be delivered to the gentiles mocked and insulted and spit on they will scourge him and kill him and the third day he will rise again so repeatedly Jesus was saying before it ever happened that not only he would be put to death and suffer on behalf of humanity but that he actually was going to be raised back to life that he would come back from among the realm of the dead even speaking of how he himself was able to bring his life back from the dead and exactly as was predicted Jesus raised back to life defeating death by the power of God for one reason because he is God and that's why he was able to be raised from the dead because he had the power over death and Jesus suffered and died for the punishment of our sins as the result of that the father in heaven was fully satisfied for what Jesus did in your place that what you could never do which is to live sin sinless in your life Jesus did and then he in a substitutional way stepped into our place and he took the punishment he took the punishment and suffered for our sin dying upon the cross and the father in heaven was so fully satisfied for that on behalf of humanity that god the father is a way of saying amen real loud on the earth he raised jesus back from the dead 
so that he could be the victorious savior and to prove his deity and to demonstrate that he was completely satisfied. Again, we must realize Jesus raising from the dead proves that Jesus Christ is God. It proves his divinity and that he faithfully accomplished what was necessary. That's why Paul says in verse 8 here, this message that I preach about Jesus, this is a gospel. The word gospel means good news. This is good news about what God has done for us and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And listen, sometimes one of the most helpful things that we all can do when we're undergoing hard times, like Paul was in prison, like Timothy was there facing challenges, pastoring Ephesus. Sometimes one of the most helpful things we can do when we're undergoing our own personal hardship is to take some time and do exactly what the first part of verse 8 tells us to do, and that's this, three words, remember Jesus Christ. Because so often that is one of the greatest antidotes to personal depression and anxiety and suffering and struggle and hardship is just to pause and to remember Jesus Christ, to reflect on Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, what he's made available to us, what he's undergone for us. Hebrews 12 says this, that we're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says this, listen, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. So again, God understanding the strain of living in this world because of sin and struggles and suffering and hardships that it causes, he says, one of the antidotes, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul while you're living here, is he says, think about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Just ponder him and reflect upon everything about him. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that is part of the reason why as well God instructed us to partake of communion. He, he, he commands us to partake of communion even as he commands us to be water baptized. It says, you know, this do as often as you do in remembrance of me. It doesn't say if you feel like doing it, so do this. Because God knows that we need at times to reflect sincerely directly upon Jesus to purposely remember the Lord. And what did Jesus said? When we partake of the Lord's table, when we partake of communion, he says, do this what? In remembrance of me. Remember Jesus Christ. It's one of the greatest ways that we can do that. When we partake of communion, we pause and, and we reflect and ponder upon what Jesus did for us and who he is to us. And it helps us, by God's design, partaking of communion, it helps us to, to get realigned spiritually. It helps us to be renewed and, and strengthened, to be encouraged in our soul. soul that, that's why we hold meetings at times where we offer the opportunity to partake of communion. Because God commands us to do that. And it's, and it's not only for his honor to remember his son, but oftentimes it's for our own benefit to remember Jesus Christ, to be renewed, to be strengthened. You know, perhaps today you're undergoing some hard things in your life. Maybe you're weary in your soul. Let me encourage you. I can't give you every answer for that and I can't give you a pill that's going to solve that. And I don't think you should automatically think that a pill is the answer to that. But I'll tell you what the antidote is. Remember Jesus. You remember Jesus. Jesus. 
and you reflect upon Jesus and consider Jesus, and I tell you, if you do that, something very therapeutic and wonderful will start to happen in your heart and your soul and your mind as you reflect upon Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's made available for your future. That's going to one day get you out of here. There's something very helpful. And so Paul here wisely says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done. This is a gospel. It's good news. Now, regarding proclaiming the gospel of Christ, Paul then goes on in verse nine regarding the gospel to say, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. He says, but the word of God is not chained. So notice God may permit his servants to be hindered maybe at times, but nothing can hold back the power of God's word itself. And this is what Paul is reflecting on. As we've talked about, remember at this point, God has allowed Paul in this season of his life to personally be in a place of suffering. Right now, Paul is hindered from church planting as he normally did. He's held back from preaching and teaching in his public ministry. At this point in time, Paul, we know, is, is, is suffering trouble, he says here, as an evildoer. That is, at this point, remember, Paul's incarcerated. He's in prison. At this is the point where he's awaiting his death sentence in a Roman dungeon. And so Paul says, as the result of doing what I've been doing, faithfully preaching the gospel, he says, I'm suffering trouble as an evildoer. Now think about that. Here Paul was undergoing personal hardship because he obeyed the Lord. Now certainly we are good at creating our own self-inflicted trials and sometimes we're experiencing personal hardship because we didn't obey the Lord. <laughs> I find when I do that though, it's usually not complicated. I know that's why I'm suffering. Usually we're pretty certain I'm suffering because, yeah, that was really dumb. I just should not have done that. I shouldn't have said that. But there are going to be times when you may suffer for obeying the Lord, for being faithful to the Lord, for speaking the Lord's truth in some way. And, and Paul was being punished and made to suffer and was mistreating, being mistreated as if he had done something evil. He says, I'm being treated like I'm an evildoer. I'm being treated like I'm a criminal. Notice to the culture, Paul was like a criminal because he was representing Jesus. He says, even to the point of chains. The idea is, is Paul says, the culture basically is treating me like I'm the one that's a criminal. That I'm endangering and disrupting the world because I'm preaching the truth of God and somehow I'm the one that's committing a crime because I'm telling people God's truth. And at this point, the chains are upon Paul. He's restricted. He's held back. He's unable to travel about. He's unable to do what he normally did in his ministry to preach in cities or teach in churches. But though the worker of God was hindered, notice Paul says, but the word of God, that's not going to be restricted. I may be limited, he says. I'm a human being. God may restrict me. But I think Paul always realized, but God really, quite frankly, doesn't need me. He has more than enough people on this earth that he can utilize as a vessel. So he says, I'm restricted right now, but he says, I may be chained, but praise God, he says, the word of God is not chained. They can't hold back God's word. God's word is always going to go forth regardless of what men do to resist it or to refuse it in any way. God's power and God's faithfulness is attached to the truth of God's word. So therefore, the power of God and the word of God are going to go forth regardless of what men do or don't do because people cannot successfully resist God's power. 
to losing battle. No one can resist the power of God. No one can resist the the plan of God. God's plan and God's power are going to bring about what God wants still. He's faithful to accomplish what he desires. No one's going to stop the power of God's word from going out on this earth. No one's going to stop the power of the gospel message from continuing to be proclaimed on this earth, no matter what they do, because God's word won't be restricted or chained. God will make sure, despite efforts to resist, that his word goes forth. He's committed to it and he's going to faithfully bring it to pass. He's going to send forth his word however he needs to go about it. God's not limited. However he needs to go about it, he will find the channel in the way. And when God's word goes forth, it has the power to set people free, to break the chains from people's lives, to liberate people. Hebrews 4 tells us that God's word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And this is great encouragement because that means that we can rest, truly rest, in God's faithfulness to accomplish God's will. And we can rest that God is going to send forth his word. God is going to do his work in people's lives and on this earth, despite any human obstacles that arise, any efforts of resistance. We don't have to truly get worried or discouraged if it seems something is hindering God's work. We don't have to get all... Well, it's, it's just, Listen, God's going to do what God's going to do still. And even in regards to the people we love and we're concerned about, and sometimes we, you know, it appears something's now holding back a person from hearing God's word, and we're thinking, oh man, listen, God's not limited. He doesn't just have a front door and a back door. He, he'll blow the house down if he has to. He's not limited. He will find a way to speak to human souls and will do whatever it takes to communicate to people, and God always has another way. God has many avenues. His word's not chained or restricted. God will, in fact, quite honestly, make a way at times where there is no way. He'll do the Red Sea thing where there had never been a way across that Red Sea before. God made a way where there had never been a way. And God is in the business of doing that. God's going to work. God's going to speak to people no matter what approach it takes for him to do it or no matter what lack there is on the human end or obstacle there is in some you know, fleshly way that it seems like that no, something's being held back. God is able, be confident, rest in faith. He's able to overcome. He's able to find a way to still speak to someone or bring about his plans and purposes. How wonderful too to know that God's word has that kind of power to break through to break chains in people's lives. We can trust in the faithfulness of the word of God as we just release the word of God in different ways that he allows us to, that God's word will always reach its intended destination. And it's always going to fulfill its purpose. Isaiah 55, God declared, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will ultimately reach its destination. It is the seed that is incorruptible, the incorruptible seed of the word of God. You release it, you plant it into a human heart. It may take years, but ultimately when God wants it to come to fruit and fruition, he'll bring it to pass. 
And we can rest in that wonderful reality. Now, in light of who Jesus is and the power of God's word reaching its destination, Paul then goes on to say in verse 10, therefore, in light of this encouragement, he says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So notice here in verse 10, Paul refers to how God is the one, again, who takes loving initiative to mercifully draw people to himself in salvation and also God faithfully assures with salvation that there is the blessed experience of eternal life afterwards. The experience of being in glory with God. And Paul was willing, he says here, verse 10, to endure or carry on through hard time for the sake of souls being saved. He says here, I'm willing to endure for the sake of the elect that they can obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Now note a few things with me in this verse regarding God's salvation. First of all, how those who have been saved, who are believers, are referred to in verse 10 here as the elect. That's the title the Bible chooses to give to them here. The elect is a biblical term to refer to the Christian, to the person who's a child of God, who's been saved by believing in Jesus Christ. And again, the word elect speaks of in its plain sense to select someone to choose someone to to make a conscious decision to personally pick and the new testament speaks of those who are saved who are christians it speaks of them in this way that not only have we chose to ask jesus to save us but even before we made that choice we were actually chosen by God and drawn into that relationship. Remember, Jesus ultimately said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And the Bible speaks in this way that God and his love chose those to be children of God before they ever made that choice to desire to become a child of God. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, says that believers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The idea being this, all the credit and the glory for our salvation, it goes to God. All the all the, the you know the, the glory for this ex salvation experience, it none of it belongs to us. It belongs to God. And and the doctrine of election, which the doctrine for the believer, not for the unbeliever, the doctrine of election is intended to make God's child feel wonderfully secure. To realize that you should feel incredibly secure that God desired for you to be in his family. That, that even before you were thinking about a need for God in your life, that God already had picked you before you ever chose to pick him to embrace and follow Jesus. It's intended to encourage us that God lovingly chose you to be a part of his eternal family. That he wanted you to be a part of the eternal experience of heaven. He initiated the relationship that you might know him. It says in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. It speaks of the value that God sees upon your life and it proves how much God wants you to be in heaven. Listen, this morning, if you are saved, it's because of the wonderful faithfulness of God.
that God saw you and put his love upon you and drew you by his spirit and called you into that relationship with Jesus Christ. He says there in verse 10, also that we might obtain, notice, obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. God wanted it to be clear that we needed to be saved and how we could be saved. And according to verse 10 here, notice salvation, which speaks of deliverance from sin's punishment, deliverance from from hell is experienced look at it there salvation is experienced verse 10 in christ jesus that's how salvation is experienced and obtained for those who get saved acts 4 says regarding those uh, regarding jesus that there is salvation in no other there is no other name among heaven it says given among men by which we must be saved the only way to be saved is by Jesus. A church can't save you. Being religious can't save you. Trying to be good can't save you. Trying to barter or bargain with God because you're a good salesman is not going to save you. The only way to be saved is to recognize you need to be saved and to, to allow yourself to be saved by Jesus Christ. In fact, notice again, verse 10, that salvation is something, look at the language, he says salvation is something that must be obtained in Jesus Christ. Last I checked, something that must be obtained indicates something that must be acquired. It must be received. The point being there this, you and I as human beings must personally obtain or acquire salvation at some point in your life. There must come a time where by understanding these spiritual truths, you obtain by believing and receiving the salvation that God's chosen and wants for you. Oh, that speaks right back to free will, doesn't it? Now we're really confused. Same verse, election and free will, right? They run like two parallel lines through the Bible. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, the word is near you, it's in your mouth. It says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we must make a decision. Again, this puts personal responsibility upon us to exercise our free will. Listen, to choose what God's chosen for you which is that you'd be saved, that your sins could be forgiven, that you would go to heaven. And God says, look, but the decision is ultimately going to be something you're held accountable for, that you're going to stand before God one day and with the free will he gave to you one day, God is going to determine, did you choose what God wanted for you, which was to be saved and forgiven and know his son, Jesus Christ? Or did you choose to reject and experience then the eternal destiny that you chose for yourself, which is, I don't want to go to heaven. And God has no other option than, okay, if you don't want to be in heaven and you don't want to be saved, the only other option is then you choose to go to hell. And again, this is something, notice, that must be obtained and given the faithfulness that God demonstrated to do this, that's why Paul's saying, verse 10, I'm willing to endure the things I am for the sake of people obtaining salvation. Because Paul saw this as such a wonderful thing. You know, a good question to ask ourselves. How willing are we to endure certain things, personal difficulties, to see people obtain God's salvation? To do maybe what we need to do in our life. Sometimes it might be challenging to see people obtain God's salvation. And how wonderful to think, too, 
that despite our sinfulness, God lovingly took initiative to mercifully draw us in his faithfulness that we might obtain this salvation that we need. And the fact that God's loving initiative and faithfulness has drawn us to a place of salvation, it also assures us as well of God's faithfulness that in that salvation, God faithfully assures that the promise of eternal life is attached to it there. Because you see what he says at the end of verse 10? He says that we may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And here's God's assurance. It comes with eternal glory. It comes with eternal glory. That God's promise is that he will be faithful to those who've experienced his salvation to give us the entrance into the eternal dimension into the presence of God after our life on this earth is over, all the glory of heaven's realm that Jesus is joining is one day going to be your experience too because your life has been joined with him, which means that after this life with all of its stress and its struggles and its sickness and its suffering is done, there's something far better on the other end. And then there's this assurance that there is this eternal glory when everything is made right. And there is no longer any of the effects of sin, no pain, no problems, no hassles, no failures and disappointments. There's no more form of pain, sorrow, suffering, or death because there's no more sin. There's the entrance into the eternal bliss of the presence of God where all is well and there is love and joy and peace and the atmosphere of being at home with God in eternal glory, reunited with those as well who've gone before us. Now, with the salvation of Christ in his mind and this promise of eternal glory, in verse 11 through 13, Paul seems to kind of reflect on a familiar set of phrases that it seems were known by people because he says, verse 11, this is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So Paul quotes this saying that people apparently knew, saying, first of all, it's a faithful saying. He's saying, this is a dependable saying, this saying that apparently these people knew in that day. He's saying, the, the truths contained in this saying that we know, it's a reliable saying, he's saying. Now, this could be, we're not certain. Some believe maybe it was an early Christian hymn. Some believe that maybe it was just a, a, a doctrinal creed that people recited to reflect upon spiritual truths. But either way, Paul says the content of what it says, it's really reliable. It's very faithful and helpful to know. And that is verse 11. He says first that if we've died with him, that is with Jesus, we shall also live with Jesus. So if we've entered into a personal relationship with the Lord, the Bible teaches our life is united together with him now. We are one with him. That is, we're joined with the Lord and we share in all of his experiences. Since we've died with him, we shall also live with him. And certainly this speaks first and foremost of our current experience and really our spiritual status as the result of our salvation through Jesus Christ that our lives have now been joined together with the day that you got saved, a spiritual experience happened. 
You were converted. You were, you were changed spiritually. And that joining of the union of you together with Christ is really much like what happens in a marriage ceremony. At a marriage ceremony, that is the culmination as the relationship is entered into, which speaks of the end of an old life and right, the beginning and establishment of a new life because of a relationship. And the same is true spiritually in the analogy. We've died to our old life when we died with Christ. We've died to our old way of life. And now we're beginning a new life together. We have a new life now together with the Lord. At salvation, we enter into Jesus' death to sin. And we also experience the power of his resurrection whereby we might now live a new life a new life together with Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this in Romans 6 to kind of describe that. He says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism and death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, believers, should walk in newness of life. For we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with and we should no longer be slaves of sin for he who has died has been freed from sin and if we died with Christ we believe that we shall also live with him again the Bible is saying that when you came to Jesus your life was unified together with his spiritually and his experience of dying to sin he didn't just die for sin Jesus also died to sin so you've died with him. The idea is that as a Christian, your life now being one with Jesus, you've died to that old sinful way of life. That old person who you were before you were following Jesus from God's perspective is dead. Now I know the old man always tries to resurrect himself about every hour in my life. But God's saying, from my perspective, you're dead to that way of life. That old life is dead. And you have a new life now. You are living in the resurrection power of Jesus. This is who you truly are. This is your identity. And now live unto God as Jesus himself does. I think as well, as we look at this statement here, it also speaks very beautifully, again, back to this thought of even our eternal destiny. If we died with him, we shall live with him. Because I tell you this morning, believer, if you die with Christ, you're going to live with Christ eternally. Forever and ever you will be in his presence. Now, Paul then, I think maybe in light of that, says verse 12, and if we endure, carry on, continue, we shall also reign with him. Now, notice that speaks of the future. Right now, most of this world on this planet is living in rebellion to Jesus. It was nothing to do with Jesus' authority or rulership. But one day, Jesus is going to return. And all that is going to change. And the tables are going to turn because Jesus is coming back to set up his throne and kingdom on this earth and something far better is coming for all of us who are his followers right now. Those of us who endure through this life and, and endure through this life's challenges being faithful to Jesus though he's being rejected by so many the Bible is saying as you endure through that one day something better is coming because he's going to return and you're going to reign and share in all of that together with him. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is coming back to take over this world. He'll overthrow evil and set up his throne of righteous rulership and will reign for a thousand years 
as King of Kings and Lord of Lords upon this earth in what we call the Kingdom Age or the Millennial Reign. Matthew 19, Peter at one occasion had said to Jesus, Lord, we've left all and followed you. What shall we have? He was struggling with what he was going through. And Jesus said this, Peter, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Listen, God is faithful and one of the ways he's faithful is God will reward his servants. God will never overlook anything that you've genuinely done for him. God will, and if that means you have to endure through certain things, mockery, made fun, you know, you're not as cool in school as you'd like to be, your people make fun of you or your family thinks you're weird or you make personal sacrifices to serve Jesus or be faithful. Or give up a little overtime at a job because you say, you know what? That's not as important as loving and serving Jesus and people and, and doing something for the kingdom. God will reward all of that, both in this life and certainly in the age to come. As you rule and reign together with him in his kingdom age, we can endure knowing that. He also says of his faithfulness in verse 12, and if we deny him, he will also deny us. So again, the Bible is very clear. For those who exercise that free will to continually deny God, for those who continue to consciously refuse and deny the Lord Jesus Christ, God will be faithful to that person as well. To the person who denies Jesus and wants to keep living apart from Jesus and doing their own thing, ultimately God will be faithful to that person too. He'll be faithful to you by giving you your willful rejections outcome, which is that there will be a denial of access into eternal life. Jesus said plainly in Matthew 10, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I'll confess before my father in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father in heaven. Whoa, 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 whoa. what does that mean? But what it means, he who confesses Jesus on this earth, <laughs> Jesus is going to, confess before his father and if you deny Jesus on this earth he will deny you access into the presence of his father it means what it says it says what it means it calls us to that place of understanding listen in the same way God will be faithful to those who served him and submitted to him God will be faithful to those who rejected him and he will be faithful to give them their choice well, verse 13, he concludes saying, and if we are faithless, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. So here we learn God always remains faithful despite human unbelief or human unfaithfulness. He says there, if we are faithless, and scholars say that term used there speaks of lacking faith or unbelief, or it could also be translated if we become unfaithful to the Lord, it pictures a time of human failure, a time of human unbelief, and how God responds. And notice, when we fail to believe, if we're faithless or we fail to remain faithful to the Lord, thanks be to God that his response to that is it doesn't alter who he is. He remains faithful. 
Even when we lack faith, when we struggle with unbelief, God always remains faithful to who he is and his nature and ways and promises. He always remains constant, stable, reliable, unchanging. God never changes. He never falters. God never fails. There may be times when I fail to believe, when you struggle in unbelief. There may be times when, when we find ourselves guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. But thank goodness, even in those instances, the Lord holds up his end and he doesn't crumble and he remains faithful and unchanging and committed. And whether or not we respond rightly to God, human failure doesn't influence who God is. He's very secure, very secure. Even the most you know, strong rejection. Well, I don't believe that. Well, that's fine. It doesn't mean it's not true. Well, I don't believe what? Do you really think just because you don't believe it, God's going to say, well, okay, I'll give you another option. <laughs> just because we don't believe, it doesn't change what's true. God will be who he is. Let, it, you know, let God be true and every man a liar, the Bible says. God remains faithful to who he is. And notice, it says because he cannot deny himself. It doesn't just say he won't deny himself. He cannot deny himself. He's unchangeable. God cannot change and he won't ever deny the truth of who he is because of man's failure or man's unbelief or lack of faith. The bottom line is we don't have to you know, understand anything more than when we don't believe, we just rob ourselves personally of God's promises and God's goodness. God cannot change. I have to change. I have to be willing to recognize that. But what a wonderful assurance to rest upon in our times of weakness in our times of unbelief to remember verse 13 that the Lord remains faithful. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and maybe currently you have been or recently faithless. Unbelief in regards to something. Be encouraged. Even in your unbelief, He remains faithful. He keeps believing. Perhaps you're here this morning and maybe recently you've been unfaithful to the Lord in some way. Can I encourage you again? Even in your failure, he remains faithful. He remains committed. What a wonderful truth to rest a weary and weak heart upon in our times of failure. And they often happen, do they not? But to know this morning, no matter what the future holds for you, he will remain faithful. Let's stand. Let's pray together.